Well, let us open our Bibles to Acts chapter 2, actually 3. Yes, Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Having uh, spent eight weeks considering and studying chapter 2 of the book of Acts, we are now entering chapter 3. As we do so, I hope you will see how everything is connected. Truly, the book of Acts is a historical record of the unleashing of the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. Chapter 3 is just another reminder of this marvelous truth. Now, before we jump into the details of chapter 3, I think it would be good to have a general layout of the chapter. And so I have identified four main sections in this chapter, which I will now outline for you in the notes. The first section is the miracle. The miracle, which is summed up in the words, rise up and walk, found at the end of verse 6. This is followed by the explanation of the miracle, which is that God glorified his servant Jesus, as we will see next Sunday in verses 11 through 18. After the explanation of the miracle, Peter will then issue the command, the command, which is found in verses 19 through 21, and it is summed up in the words, repent and turn back. Finally, this command to repent and turn back is followed by the prophecy, the prophecy which is developed for us in verses 22 to 26. And the prophecy was simply this, God will raise up a prophet like Moses with Jesus being the fulfillment. Once again, we will see the apostle Peter putting the whole Bible together for us in just a few words. So there you have it. That is the outline uh, for the next few weeks. The miracle, the explanation, the command, and the prophecy. This morning, we find ourselves in the first section, namely, the miracle which is recorded for us in verses 1 through 10. So please follow along as I read. Now, Peter and John... We're going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, that is called the beautiful gate, to ask for alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. 
And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now, there is a lot happening here. And some of the biggest, one of the biggest challenges is to keep up with all the details. So I will do my best to guide you through this terrain by providing you with six headings that I believe capture the essence of these events. These headings are, first, the clear priority of the apostles. Second, the hopeless nature of the situation. Third, the low expectations of the man. Fourth, the greater work of the Lord. Fifth, the undeniable quality of the miracle. And sixth and final, the inadequate reaction of the people. I will follow this up with a question for us to consider, and I will finish with an invitation. So let's consider the first point, the clear priority of the apostles. What was that? Prayer. Prayer. Verse 1, now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. I believe there is a specific reason as to why Luke took the time to explicitly mention the context in which this miracle took place. Before he recounts the actual miracle, he is very direct in telling us both the hour in which it took place and the activity in which Peter and John were about to engage, all of which can be summed up in one word, prayer. Peter and John, these two close friends, were on their way to the temple in order to gather with other Jews for the specific purpose of praying since it was the ninth hour, meaning three o'clock in the afternoon. So the Jews gathered for prayer three times a day. This would have been the third time. This particular truth unlocks for us very important element of this conversation. Notice with me, please, that the apostles were not looking to perform a miracle. They were not looking to perform a miracle. In fact, I would say Luke is trying to make sure we understand this. Their primary attention was given to prayer, not to the miraculous. Of course, we will read later on in Acts chapter 5, verse 12, that many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. This is undeniably true. They did perform many signs and wonders and miracles. But what is also true is that the apostles devoted themselves to what? to prayer and the ministry of the word. We're going to read this in Acts chapter 6, verse 4. The signs and wonders, the miracles, were clearly a part of their ministry. No question about that. However, it would also be appropriate to say that signs and wonders were not a priority when compared to prayer and the ministry of the word. The apostles were first and foremost men of prayer and men who taught the word of God. Much could be said about this, but I just want to emphasize this one truth. Even though signs and wonders had their appropriate place in the history of redemption, 
These signs were never the main priority. Seeking the Lord in prayer and through his word has always been the priority, even for the apostles. Consider the glory of this fact. Here are two men to whom the Lord Jesus had given the gift of miracles, signs, and wonders, and yet their primary desire was to pray to the Lord together with God's people. They could have been busy doing this or that miracle, and yet what they wanted first and foremost was communion with God. This is a tremendously important corrective to be made, especially to those trapped in movements that seem to be obsessed with the miraculous and the spectacular. It seems to me that many in the charismatic movement are bent on seeking the signs and the wonders and the miracles, but not so bent on seeking God. Extreme care should be taken by those involved in movements such as these. In fact, let me make this very important point. One of the characteristics of the enemies of Jesus during his early ministry was precisely that they were always seeking for what? For signs. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 38, they explicitly asked Jesus, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Now, throughout his ministry, Jesus gave them many signs but they wanted more. Consequently, Jesus called them an evil and adulterous generation. Why? Because they were always looking for signs. Now, I will return to that verse at the end, but there is something extremely important for us to understand, but I will close with that. For now, let me just be clear on this. We are not to be people who look for signs and wonders. We are called to be a people of prayer first and foremost. To this, the apostles were devoted. Ultimately, prayer expresses our desire to commune with God. So, let me ask you a question. Do you want to know how you are doing as a Christian? Do you want to take your spiritual temperature? then don't look at the quality or amount of spiritual gifts you may have. Rather, look at how much you make of prayer in your life. There's no greater sign as to how you are doing as a Christian. Show me a strong Christian, and I will show you a Christian who prays much. And if this morning you came in here and you are actually looking for a sign, just sit tight. And I will give you one at the end. Now consider with me the second point, the hopeless nature of the situation. In verse 2, we read, lame from birth. Lame from birth. And a man lame from birth was being carried whom they lay daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Let me see if I can help you understand how hopeless this situation uh, truly is, especially in those times. The Greco-Roman world in which all of this took place was a world in which social class was extremely important and sharply 
marked. The lines were clearly drawn so much that the people in the upper class had nothing in common with those in the lower class. According to one historian, there were essentially five main categories of people in terms of their social standing. If you can picture a pyramid, at the very top were the families belonging to the Senate. This was known as the senatorial order. That was a very small elite and very, very wealthy. Right below them was the equestrian order. To this category belonged uh, those Roman citizens that were able to buy their own horse and serve in the Roman army. Because if you could buy a horse, that meant you had money. Later on, this came to include people with uh, an economic power close to the senatorial order. Immediately below the equestrians was something called the decurion order. These were the landowners and traders who had to have a minimum amount of economic power at their disposal to be labeled as decurions. And these things were actually measured by the Romans. There was a bracket of economic power to make it into this particular category. Right below the decurions was another class known as the respectable populace. Respectable populace. As the name implies, these people had acquired enough wealth, just enough to be respectable in society. They were respectable, but barely, barely. And then at the very bottom of the pyramid were the poor, the poor. But even these people had a shot in life. They were free people, mostly able to work just enough to live paycheck to paycheck. They only had a bare minimum to survive. Now, within this lower category of the poor, there was one that was the absolute lowest of the low. These were the destitute, the destitute. Within this category were the orphans, widows, and finally, at the very, very bottom, bottom the ill. The man in our story was literally at the very bottom. Thus, he had been confined to begging for everything. Not only that, but even his ability to beg was in the hands of others who carried him to the place where his begging was a bit more effective. This is bottom. You can't get any lower than this. On top of it all, the writer adds this little nugget of misery. The man was lame from birth, which means that begging was all he knew. All of this combines tells us that this man stood as a picture of utter hopelessness and misery. I imagine that anyone having a bad day would have looked at this man and said to themselves, I am not doing that bad after all. Moreover, most people in the surrounding area would have known about this man. Why is all this background important? It is important for two main reasons. First, it magnifies the greatness of the sign of the miracle that was about to be performed by God through the apostle. Second, it explains the low expectations of the man, which is our next point in your notes, the low expectations of the man. Alms, that's all he wanted. That is all he wanted. Verses three through five, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, they asked, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him as did John and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something 
from them. Did you notice something? This crippled man was not looking for a miracle that day. In fact, Luke makes it sound as if this was routine for this man. It is just another day in the life of a crippled man in first century Jerusalem. No major changes anticipated, just another opportunity to beg. I believe this to be a great illustration of what happens when our eyes restrict themselves to the confinements of our present circumstances. This man had been confined to a life of helplessness, always dependent on the pity of those around him. Inevitably, this led him to an almost unending cycle in which everything was seen through the lenses of his dire circumstances. In other words, when this man saw Peter and John, what did he see? He saw them as he saw everyone else. Simply as man who could take pity on him and give him something that would ease his suffering and misery, if only temporarily. When he woke up that day, he didn't expect a miracle. He would have, he would have been fine with a small amount of help to get him through the day. God, however, had other plans for him. Plans this man could not have anticipated, not in a million years. Misery and poverty was all he knew. But the Lord was about to turn the entire course of his life around through the ministry of the apostles. Now, I want to be very careful here in the sense that I don't want to take this application too far. But I do think we sometimes fall into this attitude. Let me see if I can explain. And I will try to explain this as we go along. Here's a man with low expectations. He just wants pity. But I don't think we can blame him, can we? He didn't know better. This is all he knew. But I want you to consider, consider our lives. We... We were born into a world in which the kingdom of Christ has been increasing for thousands of years. We have the full revelation of Scripture. We know the ascended and exalted king is moving history to its intended and glorious end. We affirm and believe in the absolute sovereignty of God. We possess the Spirit of Christ who leads us, empowers us, and guides us. All of this is ours in Christ, and yet we often ask or expect so little of our God. We too seem to have low expectations for having such an awesome God. For instance, let me ask you this. Are you allowing yourself to be governed by the precariousness of this present world? Or are you walking under the assurance that Jesus is king of all things, including your health, your wealth, your present governments and nations? How big is your God? Are your spiritual eyes being blocked 
by your physical eyes, so much so that you're beginning to forget who rules the world? Are you, maybe, beginning to believe that COVID is in control? That's a general example, so let me make it more personal. Maybe you are dealing with other struggles, challenges, pains, sorrows that very few people know about. But these things seem all-consuming to you, and you are becoming, they are becoming a type of invisible wall that effectively blocks your spiritual eyes from seeing the God-man, Jesus Christ, exalted, ruling, and moving your life to its intended end. These things are distracting you from that which is glorious, namely the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So maybe, just maybe, we at times act like this crippled man. We are so overwhelmed by the hopelessness and helplessness of this or that situation that we begin to forget the glory of the one who stands behind it all, who is never stressed, never worked up, and never worried, Jesus Christ. Your present circumstances have become a wall or even a fortress that won't allow you to pray in faith, walk in faith, think in faith, and live in faith, whatever that might be. Whatever the challenge, the sorrow, the pain, the agony, the frustration, you must live in faith, which means in all of your struggles, in all of our pains, we must never lose sight of the exalted one, the one who sat at the right hand of God, who now has all authority in heaven and on earth. And this, by the way, means Jesus also has authority. Listen to this. Jesus also has authority over your circumstances. All of them. All of them. Which naturally takes us into the next point. I need to calm down a little bit. Let's go into the next point. <laughs> the greater work of the Lord. The greater work of the Lord. Verse 6, rise up and walk. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. So this man with low expectations, asked for silver or gold. To our ears, this might sound like a big request. After all, silver, silver or gold are both precious metals. And we can understand why this man would have sought these things. His primary concern would have been the ability to survive day after day after day. And so from that perspective, the man's request is expected. However, there was one thing this man didn't know. There was one thing this man did not know. He did not know that Jesus is king. This is amazing. This is what Peter is going to say. This man didn't know Jesus is king, exalted in the heavens. If he would have known that these two men were servants of the risen and exalted Christ whose kingdom is now on earth, he might have had the sense to ask for something greater. But he did not know. Therefore, his request, listen to this, his request was determined by his present circumstances. 
Granted, he didn't ask for anything bad, but he could have asked for more. Compared to what Peter had to give, silver and gold would have looked to him as something of much, much lesser value. I really love this scene. Let me see if I can paraphrase Peter. What you are seeking for, I do not have. I can give you, however, that which you haven't had for over 40 years. This man was crippled for over 40 years, according to chapter 4. What is that? I can restore your feet. I can restore your feet. Not just silver and gold. I don't have that, but I can, I can restore your health. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. What is the point? Jesus has something better for you. Jesus has something better for you. You cannot see it. You are blinded by your dire circumstances, but Jesus can do much, much more. And so the man was fully restored to health. Amazingly, given his hopeless circumstances, the man did not think there was anything better than silver or gold. Isn't that interesting? We might be tempted to be judgmental of this man for not considering the greater possibilities, but let me address that temptation just briefly. Going back to what I said earlier, sometimes we act like this crippled man. We ask for silver and gold when in reality God offers us something much, much better. Let me explain. Sometimes we find ourselves in dire circumstances and our first instinct is to ask what? Lord, get me out of here. Remove this pain. Remove this suffering. Lord, get me out of here. That is our first instinct. You know what that is? It's not bad. It's just silver and gold. Let me throw this at you as we think together. How can you develop dependence on God if God doesn't show you your weakness first? How can you develop dependence on God if God doesn't show you your weakness first? My brother and sister, you may be asking for silver or gold, but the Lord has something much, much better for you. And you're probably wondering, what is that? Let's keep going. Let's consider with together the undeniable quality of the miracle. The undeniable quality of the miracle. Verses 7 and 8, walking and leaping. Verse 7. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Let us do a simple mental exercise. Yes, we have time. We have time. Luke, the writer of this account, you know what he did? He was a medical doctor. He was a medical doctor. So he's looking at this, at least in part, from a medical perspective. I think this miracle, he could have chosen other miracles, but he chose this miracle because it resonated with him. After all, this miracle was something medicine could only dream of back then, right? That was over 2,000 years ago. Obviously, they didn't have the technology nor the medical knowledge to do what doctors can do today, right? Back then, it would have been impossible to instantly and perfectly restore a crippled man to the degree that he could walk and leap for joy a second later. 
That would have been impossible in those ancient times. Today, of course, the story is different, right? After all, modern medicine... Oh, wait. We still can do something like this, can we? How interesting to think that with all the medical advancements, the greater technology, the deeper knowledge, and access to infinite amount of resources, medicine still is unable to heal a man like this. Yes, medicine can help. Medicine can improve. Medicine can alleviate. There is physical therapy, which can over time show the great, to be greatly beneficial. No question about this, but no amount of medicine can restore tendons, muscles, and flesh like this. Like this, in an instant, and to the fullest. Think of the best hospital, the best doctors in the world. Nothing. This, my friends, was a miracle. God had something better for this crippled man, better than silver or gold. Likewise, he has something better for us. What is that? Here's what I mean by better. God is molding you into the image of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit. It doesn't get any better than that. You see, the power of God in us is not always displayed in God giving us relief from our circumstances and difficulties. This is not always the case. The power of God in us is always displayed, however, in the fact that in and through our circumstances, He is accomplishing His purposes in us. Now, naturally, I understand, we understand how we would ask for the Lord to remove a particular pain or difficulty in our lives. In all honesty, I don't know if he will. Asking for these things is not a bad thing. Lord, remove this pain from my life. Remove this difficulty from, that is not a bad thing. But I don't know if he will. It is only expected that we don't enjoy going through sufferings and sorrows and trials. No one does. But my brother and sister, don't ever forget to ask the Lord for that which is better than the absence of pain and difficulty in your life. And what is better than the absence of pain and difficulty is to know that in your pain and difficulty, Jesus is Lord. And even through our darkness, Jesus the Lord is making something new in you. This is always true. So I'm not asking you to start pretending like your pain and difficulty are not real and to put a fake smile on your face. 
What I'm asking you to do is to never lose sight of the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth, the one who started in you a good work, the one who is so mighty and so powerful that even your greatest trials are his servants to accomplish his will, namely Jesus, who is both Lord and Christ. In fact, consider this with me. Through this miracle, through this miracle, the exalted Jesus sent a clear message. I have authority over all things, including the effects caused by sin. Even to the details. Illness, illness, which is a sign of decay and fallenness, was instantly eradicated from this man's body by the exalted Christ through the apostles. It wasn't halfway eradicated. It was fully eradicated. The, the miracle was a complete Perfect and instant success. Modern day prosperity gospel preachers could only hope to do something even close to this. In fact, it seems like everything they do is questionable at best. Not this. When Jesus healed this man, he was healed completely, perfectly, instantly. Here's an actual miracle, the, the quality of which was simply undeniable. And this physical miracle... Don't miss this. This physical miracle by the exalted Christ represents an even greater reality. Jesus is not just able to restore a body. He is restoring all things. The restoration is cosmic. As we will read in chapter 4, verse 21, I'm sorry, chapter 3, verse 21. Heaven, listen to this, heaven must receive Jesus until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Jesus, right now, I want you to get this, this in your head. This is incredible. The God-man, the exalted Jesus, is at this very moment restoring all things. We may not see it because of the circumstances around us, but he has begun to restore all things. So Christian, I cannot promise you a physical miracle. I cannot promise you relief from your present circumstances, but I can say this with absolute conviction. Jesus is making all things new, including you. Including you. This leads us to the final point, the final um, heading, the inadequate reaction of the people. Amazement. Amazement. Verse 9 and 10. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognizing him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Interesting, seeing or witnessing a miracle such as this one with physical eyes does not warrant, guarantee that the meaning of the miracle will be grasped or understood by those witnesses. In this sense, what is happening here is similar to what happened during Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. The people who witnessed the mighty rushing wind, the tongues of fire, and the tongues speaking did not get it at first. They didn't realize, they didn't understand what those supernatural events were all about until Peter 
explained them in his first sermon. Likewise, the people's amazement and wonder don't seem to be the appropriate response. At least not the response that Peter expected from them. In fact, Peter will ask in verse 12 next week, why do you wonder at this? In other words, why are you responding like this? But we will save that for next Sunday. Let me briefly get then into our question. I have a special question for us to think through this morning. What is that question? How should we think about miracles today? Not a complicated question at all, right? How should we think about miracles today? Now, we need to be very careful in how we answer this question because it all depends on how you understand and define the word miracle. Now, before, before we define it, let me make a direct assertion. It would be severe cruelty for me to take this miracle account and make a direct application to us by saying that God will heal your body, your illnesses, and your afflictions. I will not do that. However, the question still stands. Should we look for miracles today? There are, there have been, there are pastors out there who have way more wisdom and time in the ministry than myself, so I have read another pastor's uh, opinion on this, Sam Waldron, and he was very helpful, so I'm, I'm going to follow his argumentation. The definition of the word miracle can either be strict or broad, strict or broad. The broad sense of the word miracle refers to God's supernatural interventions in the ordinary processes of the world. Can God intervene supernaturally as he pleases anywhere and at any time? I believe in this general sense, the answer is absolutely yes, he is God. But the word miracle can also be understood in a more narrow or strict sense, which is the sense we are interested in. Here's Pastor Sam Waldron's definition of a miracle in a strict sense. Listen to this. A miracle is a redemptive, revelatory, extraordinary, external, astonishing manifestation of the power of God. Did you memorize that? A miracle is a redemptive, revelatory, extraordinary, external, astonishing manifestation of the power of God. Now, that's a long definition. I will, want, I will highlight two words of that definition. A miracle, in a strict sense of the word, is both redemptive and revelatory. Redemptive and revelatory. In other words, miracles, such as the one displayed in Acts chapter 3, had this specific purpose. To reveal the redemptive nature of the apostolic message. Think of it this way. The signs and wonders performed by the apostles and a few others in the New Testament during the infancy stages of the church were further confirmation that Jesus of Nazareth was indeed Savior and Lord, exalted in the heavens. Therefore, the message of the apostles during the early stages of the church was often accompanied by miracles. Thus, the miracles were never an end in themselves. They were always a means to an end. In this sense, signs and wonders have ceased. So how do we think of miracles? 
in the broad sense of the word, God can do whatever he wants in the world, in nature, and in humanity. God is God after all. But in the strict sense of the word, in the sense given to us in the history of redemption, signs and wonders no longer have a purpose, which was to confirm the apostolic message. Now, guess what? We have all of it right here. The canon is closed. So, the apostles, it went like this. Jesus is Lord. Here's a miracle so that you believe it. Now, the confirmation of the apostolic message is the Bible itself as the Spirit brings it to our hearts. Why the Bible? Because the Bible is the full testimony of the word of Christ, of the work of Christ. This written testimony has been preserved for us down through the ages. Some have sought to destroy it. Others have tried to discredit it. No attempts have been successful. The word of Christ is still here with us. The question is, will you believe it? So I finish with the invitation. What is the invitation? Believe in the sign of Jonah. Believe in the sign of Jonah. A few moments ago, I said that if you came in here looking for a sign from God, I would give you one. I also said that I would return to the passage in Matthew chapter 12. So please turn to Matthew chapter 12, and we will finish with this. Matthew chapter 12, the first gospel in the New Testament. And I want us to read together verses 38 through 40. Matthew 12, 38 through 40. Beginning in verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet, prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jonah spent three days in the belly of a fish. Likewise, Jesus spent three days in a tomb, wrapped in death. Jonah came out of the fish alive. Likewise, our Lord Jesus Christ, after three days, came out of the tomb alive. What is then the sign of Jonah? The sign is that Jesus, the one who died and was buried, is now alive. And he lives forever. All authority over all the kingdoms of the world and over your own life belongs to him. And this Jesus, exalted above the heavens, calls you today to repent and believe in his name. He died so that you might die to sin, and he rose again so that you might be raised to a new life with him.
Jesus Christ is king. Today, he reigns forever over everything. And this, my friends, is the good news. Jesus is Lord. Believe in him today. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this simple yet timely reminder that even if things in the world seem dark, there is a king in the heavens, the Lord Jesus, who is never worried, stressed, worked up, but who rules with perfect righteousness and who is at this very moment by the Spirit accomplishing his purposes in us. So, Father, as we go through life, as we experience many, many joys and also many sorrows, help us, Lord, to never lose sight of the one who stands above the heavens, who has all authority in heaven and on earth, and who is making us new. We thank you that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, the new has come. So in our trials, in our sorrows, in our joys, we look to him who is making all things new. And we know that he is conforming us into his own image. And in this we believe, and in him we trust. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.